do you like dad jokes? Because these might be kind of like that. Okay, are you ready for it? <clears throat> okay, why can you never hear a pterodactyl using the toilet? Because the pee is silent. Okay, if you're an American in the sitting room, what are you in the bathroom? European, hey, who knew that before? Okay, what is the toilet's favorite sport? Bowling. Okay, and my personal favorite that I actually did laugh at. Why didn't the toilet paper make it across the road? Because it got stuck in the crack. Thank you. Thank you for the pity laughs. Okay, so why am I starting off with potty jokes? That is because we are going to witness the most epic bathroom story ever today. And yes, I said the word potty because I live with a four-year-old, so that is the word we use. Okay, so last week, or the past few weeks, we started Judges. Um, and I honestly feel like Judges is one of those books that just kind of gets overlooked sometimes. Like, I just forget about the book of Judges. But it's just one crazy story after the next, and it's messy, and it's filled with messy people and people who desperately need a Savior to come save them, right? Not that we can relate to that, right? So, so far, what we have seen so far up to this point So the people of Israel have moved into their assigned land. They're in the promised land, and they were supposed to conquer these tribes and move them out. And they did defeat many tribes, but they also left many other tribes. And so they disobeyed God by letting them stay. And so God told them, because you let them stay, then I'm not going to help you drive them out. Instead, they're going to be a thorn in your side. And he even says that to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So then from that, these nations overtake them. And so we'll, we'll see this cycle of God will send different judges to save them and to lead them and turn them back to God. So we're going to see this, this cycle happen and these inconsistencies from the Israelites that when a judge arises, then they start obeying God. They turn back. They listen to these judges. But then once the judge is gone, then they just go right back to serving these other gods. And so it's this unhealthy cycle of constantly turning back to what is just right in front of them instead of serving God. And then we see God continuously disciplining them and saving them and rescuing them. So we're going to look at the first three judges today. So the first judge is Othniel. Um, So it starts off in Judges 3-7 by saying, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So you're going to notice this is actually kind of like a somewhat common phrase in this book. It almost kicks off the next judge of Israel. And so Israel disobeys God. They find themselves in a bind. They're surrounded by enemies. They finally cry out to the Lord. And then the Lord swoops in and rescues them by sending this judge. So continuing in Judges 3, verse 7. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. It took them eight years of being under this king for them to finally cry out to God. But when they finally did, he sends a man named Othniel, and it said that the Spirit of God was upon him. 
and they went to war, and the Lord gave the king into their hand, and the Israelites won. Now, Othniel was Caleb's brother. If you remember who Caleb was, we saw him just at the beginning of Judges, and he was uh, one of the leaders with Joshua that helped bring the people of Israel into the promised land. So Othniel was a strong warrior, and so we saw him back in chapter 1 actually defeat some of Israel's enemies for them, and his reward for doing that was getting to marry Caleb's daughter, who was also his niece, but we're just not even going to get into that. It's a long time ago. Um, but what is interesting here is that it said God sold them into the hand of the king. In other words, he gave them over to be taken. He removed their protection. But as soon as Israel cries out and turns back to God, then he sends a rescuer to deliver them from that. And so that's the cycle we see. In 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two, 32, it says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So the Israelites had already put themselves in this situation by merging with these nations and taking on their idols. But if God hadn't allowed them to be so overtaken, they may not have recognized just how desperate their situation was or recognized their true need for God. Sometimes we need to be placed in desperate situations in order to recognize our need for a Savior. So I, with my kids, I mean, I discipline my kids because I want what's best for them, right? I love them. I want to protect them because I know there's so much, something that could be so much worse for them if I don't teach them right and wrong. So they get in trouble, for instance, if they run across the street without, you know, stopping or looking both ways, right? You remember that probably when you were a kid too. And so it's actually my love for them that I do them. Wouldn't, do, wouldn't it be so much better if they got in trouble with me as opposed to getting hit by a car? Because I can see the bigger picture, and I know there's something so much more dangerous if I just let them do what they want. So sometimes difficult things that happen to us or consequences can really be God's grace saving us from something that would be so much worse. Or they can also be a way of testing us and show us what we truly believe or what is lacking in our faith. So it says that Israel forgot God. Now, do you think they actually forgot God? I mean, not too long ago in their recent history, they just experienced them coming out of Israel, God saving them, parting the Red Sea, coming with them the whole way through the wilderness, sending bread from heaven. So you can't just forget that. So they still knew who God was. They knew what he had done. They knew what he had asked of them. But it wasn't real for them anymore. They had lost that love, and they had stopped believing him in their hearts. Tim Keller says this, Our hearts are like a bucket of water on a very cold day. They will freeze over unless you regularly smash the ice that is forming. Though we know truths about God, we can very easily lose the sense upon our hearts of their reality. So it can be too easy for us to get desensitized to the culture around us and forget. Um, it made me think about, like, scary movies. Do any of y'all like scary movies? <laughs> I thought I did, and then I saw, like, Paranormal Activity. I don't know why I did that. That was the worst. I, I don't like scary movies is what I learned from that. But my example is I, th I think about um, when I was a kid, I was terrified of the movie, um, is it called The Gremlins? Those, like, tiny, cute little, like, furry 
babies and they're like adorable little pets and then you get water on them and they flip out and they turn into little demons and they like multiply and they're like under your bed and like taking over. I was, guys, I was terrified. I wasn't supposed to watch that movie, I think. My brother, my older brother was watching it. So then I couldn't walk next to my bed for like a long time. I would have to like take a running leap from my door to like like hop onto my bed because they might attack me from underneath my bed. So I was terrified of that, right? But now that I'm older, I'm not going to be scared of that. Like I've gotten used to that. I've seen scarier things. So something that before where I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to do that. Like that is, that is a no. Now I'm like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Like I could watch it with that crazy clown and I'm old enough to know like, there's most likely not going to be a demented clown running around. Like 99% sure that's not going to happen. 90% sure, no. But, so like I'm not scared of that movie because I've gotten used to it. So like I've gotten desensitized to stuff that would have been scary the first time I had seen it when I was younger, but now I'm like, it's not that big of a deal. And I didn't even really realize that I've gotten desensitized to that. But we can be so influenced and consumed by the culture and stuff around us that we don't even recognize it. Where things that before, when you first saw it, you might be like, oh no, like that's bad. Like I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna even get into that. But then you see it so much in front of your face that you eventually become like, I guess it's not that big of a deal. Why, I could probably do that. Who knows, everyone else is doing it. Like it's probably not that big of a deal. But the thing is, is we forget the Lord. We forget the truth. We forget that it's his righteousness, that, we've, that he is the one that tells us what's right and wrong, even though the world is going to be saying the opposite things. But he actually, as creator, I think he probably knows what's best for us. He actually knows what's good for us and what is not good for us. But we become so blinded by all these messages around us that we think, oh, you know, maybe it's okay. It's not a big deal. Tim Keller says, if the forgiveness and salvation of Christ is real to you, then you will live it out in your character and life. So if God's grace is real to you, if what Jesus did on the cross is real to you, then you're going to live in a way that reflects that. 2 Peter 1 says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Maybe sometimes we just need to stop and really think about our life. Have we become blind to the things around us? We become desensitized. How are you living out your faith? Is the gospel real to you? And can others see that it has changed you? We can't stop believing what we know to be true. So Othniel was um, in the book of Judges, besides Joshua, the only one whom we are given details, and he doesn't have this, like, it, he's not explicitly flawed. So he's a great first judge to, to kind of kick it off and lead Israel. 
So things are going great. They defeat their enemy. They have rest for 40 years. Then Othniel dies. And the very next verse says, if you can guess, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they turned back again. So the next judge is Ehud. So this time, instead of it taking eight years for Israel to cry out to the Lord, it took them 18 years of being oppressed by this king. Now, this might be, hands down, one of the best stories in the Bible. Um, So I just want to read it to you. It's kind of long, but it's just, it's too good to not read. Okay. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Eglon, or when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword with his right from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly and the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed But when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, then they took the key and opened them, and there lay the Lord dead on the floor. It's like this sneaky ninja assassin. Um, So greatest bathroom story of all time, yes. Um, You know, Dave told me at one point that one of his favorite verses in the Bible is, and the dung fell out, and his birthday was a few weeks ago, so one of you needs to make like a shirt or a mug or something that says, and the dung fell out. I think he would really appreciate that. So there's a couple things to note about this situation here. So the first thing is it said they were bringing a tribute, right? So that's just the tax payment um, that they had to bring to the king. So that's how they got their initial audience. That's how they were able to come and approach him. And then it says that he was left-handed. Do we have any left-handed people in the room? Is anyone left-handed? We got like one. What's the hardest thing about being left-handed? Writing. Okay, so... When you hear that someone's left-handed, like, this doesn't seem like much to us, right? Like, it seems like it's not that big of a deal to be left-handed here. You know, the writing, like, there's a few things, but you get by, right? So, but for here, it would have been very surprising to the original readers to hear that he was a left-handed man. Because the right hand was a symbol of power and ability. Most people were right-handed, used your sword with the right hand, God swears by his right hand, and also the chosen one sits at the right hand of God. So to be left-handed was not typical and would probably be seen as weaker. So there's even speculation that his right hand may have been disabled um, in some way. There's one commentary that I read that says the Hebrew phrase, 
that he was shut out of his right hand intimates that either through disease or disuse he made little or no use of that but of his left hand only and so was less the less fit for war so because of that he was able to smuggle his sword because he strapped it on his right side because most people who wielded swords would strap it on their left side and they'd grab it with their right hand right so the guards didn't even check they didn't think he was armed so because of this because of this perception of they of them of him thinking he had this handicap and thinking he was unarmed when Ehud comes back with his secret message he gets the private audience with the king because they don't think anything of it and the king doesn't consider someone with a handicap to be a threat just a tad arrogant so he makes all his attendants leave him alone with Ehud in his cool, cool roof chamber which that is just a room on top of the roof it was the coolest part of the house um, so it was just a room and inside that room then there was also a bathroom inside um, so finally the other thing to note about this is it said he was a fat man this is not to be derogatory. Um, it was most likely he was very, very obese. And because of this fact, that was a big factor in Ehud killing him because he wasn't able to really defend himself or move quickly. And so Ehud just moved swiftly. And then also the fat closed over the knife so you couldn't even take it out. It's real gross. Um, so with all of this, Ehud was pretty smart in how he carried this out in order to save Israel. And then Ehud just escaped off the roof before the servants even returned. And then they just waited, thinking he, like, had a bad burrito or something and needed some time. Um, but then Ehud meets up with the Israelites, and he tells them in verse 28, he says, Follow after me, for the Lord has given the, your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So then the Israelites just follow them, and they attack, and they overtake Moab. Now, they probably wouldn't have followed a left-handed man, unless he had done something like this to take down the king to ensure their victory beforehand. Um, and they ended up defeating the Boabites and killed like 10,000 people. Um, and then they had 80 years apiece after this. Now, when you consider the two judges, Othniel was the typical person that you would expect to come in and rescue Israel, right? Like he was a warrior. He had already fought and won battles. He was from the line of Judah which was King David, and Jesus are also from that line. It's a very special line. But here, God has chosen someone that they would not have expected. And yet, God chose him, and he was the perfect man for the job. His cunning, along with the image that people have had of him, allowed him to lead Israel to victory. And that's just it. God likes to, lead, to work in unexpected ways, doesn't he? Haven't you always noticed that God will choose the weak, the humble, the lowly, because when we're weak, then he is strong. I think sometimes we think that it's up to us, that we have to be awesome, right? We think about what we have to do or what we can achieve, and we put this burden on ourselves thinking that we have to be great. Let me tell you, that's just idolatry mindset. Like, we think that we have control. Like, if I bring this or if I do this, then God will bless me. God will make me great at this. But as Keller puts it, says, that is not loving submission, but cynical manipulation. But when we truly turn to God and we see that he demands heart surrender, not partial concessions or negotiations, we do not do deals with God because we have nothing to offer him. Jesus was also an unexpected deliverer. In Isaiah 53, it said that he had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. 
He didn't save us in a way that the Israelites expected. They expected to some, someone, warrior, come in and just, like, take over and just dominate the Roman Empire, right? But he didn't do that. He did it in a humble way, a self-sacrificial way. Tim Keller says, God is a God of grace, not works. He takes and uses people who are at the margins of society in order to show that salvation is from him and not from our own human ability. So Jesus may have been an unexpected savior, but we are an unexpected recipient because we've brought nothing to the table, right? The only thing I brought to the table is pride, impatience, frustration, you know, whatever it is. I, I'm not good enough to bring anything to the table. Christ has provided everything through his death and resurrection. So the third judge is Shamgar. He gets one whole line in this passage. I guess that's all you really need if, you know, gets the point across, right? So verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. He killed 600 men by himself uh, with a weapon that looks like this, slightly terrifying. Um, now, if you only had one line in the Bible, like, it's not too bad of one to have. It's a tad violent, but like, it also says he saved Israel, you know. Um, it's better than the dung fell out, right? So, however, what is interesting here is Shamgar isn't even a Hebrew name. And the Canaanites worshipped a warrior goddess named Anath, who it said he was the son of Anath. So, there is speculation that he wasn't even an Israelite. Interesting that God used a non-Israelite warrior to save the Israelites from their enemies. He yet again used an unexpected deliverer. I love when we get to see God's mercy extend to others on the outside and bring people in to become his people because that's the whole mission, right? Is that others who don't know him will come to know him and love him. So as we continue this series in Judges, we're going to see these continuous cycles of Israel turning away from God and going after what's easy and going after what's right in front of them, thinking, oh, that looks good, so I'm going to do that. Everyone else is doing that. I'm going to do that too. But through God's mercy, he will bring deliverers to save them from this mess that they get themselves into. So we see this theme of a desperate need for a savior throughout. And it's one we need to pay attention to because we too fall into these cycles of getting trapped by by what looks appealing or what looks easy. And we just can grab hold of it because we think it'll give us like a sliver of satisfaction or this newest thing that, that everyone's doing that we just think we got to do that too. But in the end, hope that we recognize that it's worthless and it's short-lived. And I hope that we recognize our need for a Savior, the only one who can really give us a, an identity, the only one who's truly going to save you, the only one who's truly going to satisfy. I love the quote that I said from earlier for, from Keller. It says, if forgiveness and salvation is real to you, then you will live it out in your life. So these truths about God, these truths about Christ defeating death, that he did it for you, you may know them, you may know about it already, but do you believe it in your whole heart? Do you believe it in a way that reflects how you live your life, that will change your life? I'm going to pray, and then we'll break out in discussion. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that um, you give us examples like this of um, sending a deliverer, Lord, to show 
our need, just like the Israelites needed a deliverer, because we can get so trapped and caught up in what we think we want or what we think might be good for us, Lord. But I pray that we can recognize that you are what's good for us and your word and your truth. And we praise you that you did send a deliverer, that you sent Jesus to save us, God, so that we can't even try to bring something to the table because we know that we're insufficient, Lord, but we know that you are enough and you are exactly what we need. I just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Y'all can break off in your groups.